delight to be with you. And I noticed as uh, uh, Josiah was uh, singing his song and, and Tom was leading us, this is the Lenten season. Just three weeks, we will be celebrating the great day of the resurrection. And everything I'm going to share with you in the next few days will have at least that in my mind as I'm pointing us to this time when Jesus was not only crucified, he did not stay dead, as one said, he rose from the grave, and he lives at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I this very moment. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, if you would just open with me, and I'm only going to use one verse of Scripture. It's found in the Gospel of John, it's in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, and it's the last verse in the third chapter in the Gospel of John. Now, the whole chapter 3 will be the context of the message, but this is the text. And would you like to stand one more time with me as we read that one verse, verse 36, in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and it, it speaks volumes. Notice it carefully. <clears throat> he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's a powerful statement. Father, continue in our midst. Thank you for these that have come. They've come to hear you speak to each one of us. We are here to hear what you want to say. So speak, Lord, and thy servant heareth. We ask it in your blessed name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me focus on that one verse, but I cannot do it without bringing the entirety of the third chapter of John into it. At least four or five different times in those 36 verses, if you read them carefully, you'll discover that John gives to us the conditions for salvation. At least four different times, and I think another time could be considered five different times, the conditions for salvation that you and I must meet in order to be saved, but there are also the consequences that follow if we do not meet those conditions. When you come to the last verse that I read in your hearing, that's sort of a summation of everything that's been stated in the first 35 verses of that chapter. Now you know this chapter begins with a night visitation with Jesus from a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a rabbi, or, and that simply means a teacher. He was a student of the law. He taught the law. And he walked up to Jesus in the night hours, and he simply said to him, Rabbi, speaking of Jesus, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. But it was almost like Jesus ignored that little compliment, and he looked at this rabbi and said, Rabbi, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a powerful statement that Jesus gives to us. This rabbi didn't need a teacher, he needed a redeemer. Jesus knew that. Though he himself taught, he did not need an instructor. He needed salvation. And so Nicodemus looks at him, and many of us think this, because I think this term born again has really been soiled so much we just sort of look at it very flippantly. Maybe we should understand he means born from above or born of the Spirit when he says you must be born again, Nicodemus. But Nicodemus looked at him and said, uh, how can a man be born Can he again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb 
And I think that was a logical question to ask a man that didn't know any more about it than he did. And all of a sudden, Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, there's something mysterious about this new birth. He said, the wind blows where it listeth, and thou hears the sound thereof. Cannot tell from whence it cometh or whether it goeth. So is every man born of the Spirit. Now, you know there's something mysterious about the wind. You can feel it. You can see the effects of it. You can even gauge the speed of it. But you really can't handle the wind. It's, it's not something you look at or something that is tangible. And I say that because there are some things in this Bible I've learned across these many years that do not lend themselves to the definitions of the finite mind. <clears throat> when we come to Jesus, we don't come head first, we come faith first. When I got saved back in 1958, 65 years ago, I can tell you I had not been in church, didn't know much about church. In fact, the thing that brought me to church was the reality of life and death when my father accidentally run over a little five-year-old sister of my life in my family. And I had to ask myself the question, what happens after the death? Where is she now? And I couldn't rest until I found the answer, but when I heard the message of the gospel, and when I heard this admonition, you must be born again, I made my way down to an altar, knelt at an altar, and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, come into my heart, and that was the greatest decision I ever made in all of my life. And I want you to understand, I'm not speaking something of a fantasy when I say that because I've discovered there's a whole lot I cannot comprehend in my mind. But I can assure you there are certainties in the heart. There are some things we cannot comprehend in our head, but through faith we're able to apprehend them. And so I just believe God because he was God. And I'm glad I didn't hear a lot of skeptics and gainsayers and agnostics and atheists trying to whisper in my ear because God came that night, forgave me of my sins, made me a new creature because faith is an act of the will. Faith is not just some fly-by-night so-called believing. It is an act of the will. That's why Jesus says, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it be of God. Now, there's three words I just want to hang your thoughts on this morning. I'll try to make very brief. But I want you to note, first of all, the absence of life. See it in that one verse where he says, He that believeth not the Son of God shall not see life. That's the absence of life. Better news than that is the assurance of life. He also says, if you read it, He that believeth on the Son shall have everlasting life. That's the assurance of life. I wouldn't want to live without that assurance. But there's something very frightening if you re read the scriptures with any understanding, and that is the alternative to life, and the alternative is the wrath of God abideth on you if you believe not the Son of God. <clears throat> Let me take them one at a time real briefly. The absence of life, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. You know, it's difficult to deal in the New Testament without reaching over into the Old Testament, particularly in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. That's when it all began, when God made man out of the dust of the ground. And you remember he breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and man was made in the image of his creator and after his likeness. After he was made, of course, God had already previously created this pristine garden we call the Garden of Eden. 
And when he looked at his new creation man and his helpmate Eve, he said, I want you to have dominion, authority over everything I've made. Oh, he said, there's one thing I'm going to prohibit. He said, there's a little tree in the midst of the garden. He said, I don't want you to eat of it. I don't want you to partake of it. For he said, in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. Eve found herself drifting over there to that tree. And there was the old serpent who was serving as Satan himself. And he looked at her and said, you mean God said you can't eat of that tree? He was, he was casting suspicion on the creator by the very question that was being asked. Oh, he said, you won't die. He said, in fact, he doesn't want you to eat because you'll become like God. And so Eve reached out and grabbed that fruit and pulled it to herself. By the way, folks, Luther, Martin Luther said, sin is inward. Sin is man moving inward. And that's exactly what Eve did. She reached at it, partake, took of it, gave, her, gave it to her husband, Eve, and he ate. And there came a separation between God and man. If you want to know what spiritual death is, it's simply being separated from the Creator or God. I know that happened because if you remember, he said before that, they would come in the cool of the day and they would walk in the garden together, God, Adam, and Eve. Only this day, Jesus came to the garden, Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. Remember, Jesus went out and said, Adam, Adam, where art thou? And finally they came they were hiding, so we hid ourselves, for we recognized our nakedness. They recognized their separation from God. And when he said, in that day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, it wasn't physical death. They were still physically alive. It was a spiritual death, and he drove them out of the garden that he had previously given them the dominion over, put a flaming sword over the gate to keep them from coming back in, and sin passed upon the whole human race. In fact, you and I are facing this terrible, wicked, wretched world today, and all of us having sinned and come short of the glory of God because what Adam did that day. <clears throat> Paul in Romans 5 says, there, the offense of one consequently created all men dead. It said many dead, but it's, the literal is all dead. We can have physical life in this world and still be walking around dead because we can be dead in our trespasses and sin. I did that for 15 years. I was dead in my sins even though I was alive on this earth. It's what we call spiritual death. Consequently, because of that, he reminds us all having sinned and come short of the glory of God, all of us are in a common category of demerit. I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. You've sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us need a Savior. That's why Easter excites me, that we have one whose name is Jesus. And as Josiah was singing about the cross this morning, <clears throat> I could not get away from the fact it was my sin that required his death. It was your sin as well. So that is an a, a absence of life. By the way, <clears throat> we love life. Man has a way of recoiling from mortality. We don't like to have, I don't like to have funerals. I've officiated funerals. I don't like 
to lose loved ones. You don't like to lose loved ones. We come through this COVID where so many have passed away. Many are still facing the effects of sickness. There's something about mortality that we recoil from. We don't want to die. But we cannot ignore the shrouded silence of death because there's something innate in every one of us. Something that never is content to die. But while we are morally doomed to die, we also know that physical death, when one leaves this world into the next, is not the cessation of existence. And I said to you about that little girl dying, my sister, <clears throat> that was not her end. She passed from one place into the next place, and because she was only five years of age and never yet come to the age of moral discrimination or moral accountability, she went immediately into the presence of God and has been enjoying that ever since for some 65 years. But uh, spiritual death is like uh, a member of the body, a finger or a toe, uh, cut off from the normal flow of the body and results in putrefaction and death. Well, that's what Jesus is telling us if you go to John 15, when he talks about the vine and the branches, it's like the branch cut off from the vine. If one is not born again, it will result in eternal death. Now, the good news is, and this is what I want to say, because we all have to come this direction, we can receive Christ and have the assurance of life. The assurance of life. And I want to emphasize that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You know, Christianity is not a mere religion. I'm, I'm not interested in religion. I've studied religions. I'm not interested in religion or religiosity. I'm interested in a relationship with a person. And if Christianity is anything, it's not a somewhat, it is a someone. His name is Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, everything changes. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17 when he said, this is life eternal. What is it, Jesus? I want to know. This is life eternal that we might know thee. That's an intimate knowledge with God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's like the, uh, the vine now, or the life of the vine is now communicated to the branch. The branch can't bear fruit if it's not in communication with the vine, but when it's into the vine, life ensues. This thing called eternal life <coughs> consists of communion, which will never cease, in an environment that will never pass away, and it comes not through generation, but through regeneration born again. Now, I've thought about it oftentimes. If immortality is a fact, and by the way, let me just say to you, if I did not believe there was life beyond this life, this life would be the greatest mockery one could ever endure. I'm glad I'm at the short end of something getting bigger and better all the time. I'm getting closer and closer all the time to the realization of this we call eternal life. If immortality is a fact, then the greatest portion of my existence is going to be beyond the grave. That means the way I'm living now should have a great impact on whose I am and whom I serve. Having said that, Amos, you remember, said we're here for one reason, and that is to prepare to meet God. You know, it's interesting, a lot of people know how to make a living, 
but they don't know how to make a life. I'm more interested in making a life, and I'm sure you are too. So sometime in this life, sometime between an unchosen birth and an unwanted burial, you and I will make a decision. You can't escape it. You can ignore it, but you'll make a decision. We will either believe the Son and have everlasting life, or we will not believe the Son, and our destiny is the wrath of God. Doesn't seem to me like there's much of a choice there. If a man used his head as well as his heart, it seems to me as though he would want to prepare to meet God. What is the alternative? The wrath of God abideth on him. You know, I, I pain to even have to talk about this aspect. But the wrath of God, when you talk about wrath in, in the context of God, it's not an uncontrollable anger like we think of wrath in this day. It's the only way a holy God can respond to that which has wrecked his economy in the beginning, which is called sin. All of us have sinned. Consequently, the doctrine of eternal retribution is the chief ground upon which Christianity is attacked. People almost laugh at such a, such a statement of hell today. There is no such thing. Just go to the grave and die like an animal. If I thought that, I wouldn't even want to live. And when you tell them there's not only a place of glory in heaven, there's a horrible place of hell. And it's opposite. And consequently, what we do, we have a tendency to, as a skeptic, to say it's barbaric, and it impugns, impugns the goodness and the mercy of God. But now I want you to see it differently. No one understands the horror of God's wrath more than Jesus. How do I know that? Because he came into this world, walked some 33 years, went through the very trials, beatings, finally crucified to be our, the propitiation for our sins. He has made him, God has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. He suffered alienation from the father and the torture of the cross. When he was hanging out there in the very last moment becoming sin for you and me and suffering God's wrath he looked over to the Father, and for the first time in eternity's past, never will that occur again, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If anyone understood the wrath of God, Jesus Christ came on purpose so that he could avert or prevent you and me from enduring God's wrath. Jesus Christ paid for our salvation, I think, in itself, the very price he had to pay, God, the Son of God, in itself speaks of the hellishness of a lost soul. We divide people today, don't we? Politics, education, ethnicity, gender. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But when you read God's word, the price Jesus paid for our salvation, did you notice he only has two groups of people? One is the believer, and one is the unbeliever. That's the only division this Bible gives us. 
Belief is more, by the way, than an historical fact about a historical person. Because you hear people say, well, I believe, I believe. But I have to tell you, they continue to walk in willful disobedience. Yeah, I believe, and yet at the same time, their life doesn't testify that they really believe. You see, the, the Bible, the scripture does not countenance that kind of hypocrisy. John teaches us that disobedience equals disbelieving. In other words, the scripture does not allow us to divorce. The scripture does not allow us to divorce believing in Christ and not obeying him. We have to obey. If you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. Now, I know the wrath of God is a very neglected theme. But let me share something else I think is very important. That word wrath is used only one time in John's gospel. You say, why is that important? John has a number of key words. In these short 21 chapters, to give you an idea, he uses the word father because this is a familial, a family letter 118 times. He uses the word world 67 times, the word witness 71 times, the word truth 46 times, the word love 44 times, life 35 times, but wrath is used only once. But I want to caution you. We must not conclude because he uses it only once. It's not important. Because God has only to say something once for it to be true and important. <clears throat> if you were on trial in this world and a judge stood behind the desk and he gave, pronounced the judgment on you and said you would go, have to be face death in 24 hours or five years or whatever, he may have only said it one time, but that doesn't lessen the severity of that trial. I'm just simply saying God's wrath is a holy indignation which a good man feels in the presence of stark evil. So here in John 3.36, it's the very opposite of life. It's normally you think of life, death, not here. It's either life in Christ or wrath. Eternal life is defined as fellowship with God. The wrath of God is defined as separation from God. But also notice the persistence of God's wrath. The word abideth, the wrath of God abideth, literally translate rests on him. You know, the Christian life is described as abiding in Christ. Once again, as the branches abide in the vine. But wrath of God attaches permanently to man's sin with all the misery that follows. These words shall not see life, if you believe not on the Son, shall not see life, speak of a future and final judgment of God. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us through faith and through love to receive Christ so that the wrath of God does not rest on us. And by the way, that wrath is resting in this world as well as the world to come. It's in this moment he wants to cleanse us. There was a great uh, scholar, <clears throat> American scholar by the name of Filson. Floyd Filson said that John 3.36 is as basic as John 3.16. Isn't that interesting? We all know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said this verse is just as basic as that. There's a man I've 
come to appreciate, and you probably have too, some of you read after a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, for 30 years, was an atheist. He would not bow his knee to God. He did not believe in God. A great student of the, of the word, and all of a sudden, he said, I found myself without any hope. And he said, I began to call upon God. And he said, God began to speak to me. And he said he first spoke to me merely from the creation. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day under day utter speech, and night under night showeth knowledge. And then he said, you know, you can find out about a man by talking to him more than looking at the house that he built. <laughs> and he said, I began to talk to Jesus. If you ever read anything, Mere Christianity, The Four Loves, or Chronicles of Narnia, he's written volumes. He's a, he was a great mind. I just say that to you because C.S. Lewis made this statement. <clears throat> I would pay any price to say truthfully that all men in the end will be saved. And then he said, but I lied. For he said, I could not pay one thousandth part of the price that God paid in the death of his son to remove the fact of man's lostness in hell and in spite of all of the agony and the suffering, the blood, the death, the dying that Jesus endured, still there's a hell. Shocking. You see, God does not permit neutrality. If there's anything I had discovered about this book 65 years ago is that it does not flatter me. It gives me facts. And by the way, if we're going to balance this matter of eternal life, I want to know, I want to know for sure. I don't, I don't want somebody to flatter me. And I, I discovered that he has no neutrality anywhere in this Bible. We either believe on the Son or we believe not the Son. And determined by which it is will determine whether it, we have life or the wrath of God abides on us. The wages of sin is, 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 uh, sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we come through this Lenten season, and as uh, Tom mentioned, there will be Palm Sunday, and going to have Easter Sunday, going to see Good Friday. Never understood why that was Good Friday when Jesus was crucified and hung outside the gates of Jerusalem on the call on the old rugged cross, and even the sun hit his face. It was a dark hour for three hours as he hung out there for my sin. If we ever get to heaven, man will be able then to become more of what God created him to be than he is ever able to succeed to in this life. In this life. I want to make sure I go there because there's a whole lot of things I'm not going to live long enough to hear to understand or to find out or to do. But I'm going to have all eternity to learn, to live, to develop, to know. Samuel Chadwick, the great professor of Southport College in London, England, said, the more a sinner a man is, the less a man that sinner is. I want to be the man Jesus provided for me. You want to be the man or the woman that you were created to be. And Jesus has made a way, even though our first father and mother failed us, we can have new life in Christ.
And that's the statement that he gives to us in that last verse. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Aren't you glad Jesus cared so much that he came and died for you and me? I so am afraid that we have just sort of fantasized that. I'm glad I know it's true, it's real, and I want to make sure one day I get to see him face to face. I don't want to, you know, I really don't want to just go to church to be going to church. I don't want to play religious just to be religion. It's a person. His name is Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning?